This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Good morning. So welcome to the uh, online Zendo this beautiful Saturday morning. It's pretty, pretty nice out there today here in Austin. I guess I wanted to start this talk by actually just checking in with people to see how people are doing. I know that, uh, you know, I'm happy to give my own little brief check-in. It's been a hard couple weeks since I gave my last Dharma talk <laughs> on the 2nd of January, where I was kind of hopeful and yay, we made it. It's a new year. <laughs> uh, so um, I, um, I just thought I would start by maybe hearing from a couple people. I know that um, there is so much going on in, uh, in our individual lives and in our nation's consciousness. And um, yeah, I think that one of the benefits or one of the responsibilities, uh, one of the opportunities of having a place like the Austin Zen Center, a place where we can gather, we have a shared practice or practices, actually I should say shared practices um, we still have a lot of, uh, you know, completely different experiences as well. So within that shared context and unique experience, we have the opportunity to come together. And for me, having such a community is incredibly important. And especially during something like a pandemic, where it's really challenging to be, uh, to find ways to connect actually, because the usual ways that we have um, are not so available. So this kind of space, this kind of community uh, is I think even more important to acknowledge and appreciate. So with that, I wonder, I'd love to hear from people how they're doing individually. Yes, Catherine. Please. Um, I'm anxiously waiting for the vaccine and I'm on four lists. So I've, I'm just um, sitting and waiting. And But my sister has moved here for the winter um, to live with me. And um, I'm, so I'm really, really happy to have company. Mm. And she's very funny and always has stuff to do. So it's just like when we were little kids. She always wants to do a lot and I always want to stay home and read a book. So we haven't, we haven't really changed. So actually things are okay for me. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Catherine. <laughs> Good news. <laughs> Anyone else? Yes, Tracy. Uh, yes, Marco. I can hear you. I was just writing Kokyo to say, um, steady as it goes, relax. <laughs> and I mean that on a 
a couple levels at relax, but being the group that we're, we are right here right now, uh, it, it really means the, the practice I do of, well, what I call, not what I call, what I've taken on that others call, um, relaxing attention from objects on and off the cushion. <laughs> And the other relax, the other kind of relax too. Yeah, that that too. So, um, so wait a minute. So relaxing attention on objects from objects. From, uh, attention from objects, both on and off the cushion. You got it. Can you say uh, say what that means to you? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I guess in our circle, a common phrase might be letting go of thoughts, mm -hmm. for as a synonym, maybe for relaxing, um, maybe one could say softening the focus of attention, you know, which is that attention being that narrowed form that awareness can take in order to know something as an object. Yes. So the, the you mean like the stickiness of objects, the grasp. Thank you. That's a, that, there's so many synonyms for this. <laughs> yes, they are. <laughs> yeah. Um, and and to add to it, uh, I for myself, I threw in, yeah, so steady as it goes, softening attention, uh, and um, and staying attentive. Because uh -huh. I can get a little, like, too relaxed. Right. And not really be paying attention to what's going on. <laughs> so maybe... That that maybe that might conventionally for some people also be a synonym for 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 mindfulness, mm -hmm. attentiveness. Yeah, a contradiction there. <laughs> How about that? You must be at a Zen center. <laughs> I just noticed that. There's a little contradiction there. That always happens. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you, Tracy. Yes, Pat. Well, things aren't too bad. I think I've felt a little more anxiety this week than in general and more of a feeling like, wow, this is still going to be a while. After getting my hopes up that the pandemic would be done in a few months, I feel now like, well, probably not going to be done in a few months at the rate the vaccines are going. So I'm, I'm kind of anxious about getting uh, getting my vaccine. I'm, not, I'm really only on one list. I had so much trouble getting on that. Uh, city list that I still haven't gotten on it. So um, I, I, one of my big projects right now is uh, to uh, cut my addiction to Trump, uh, you know, and quit seeking out articles about him and just, you know, wanting to kind of uh, have him be gone from my mind uh, and yet still try to keep informed as to what's going on. Uh, one thing I found uh, in the few times that I am, what's that? How's that going for you? <laughs> well, I, I tried to say, okay, I'm not going to read any articles in the paper that have Trump in the headlines, you know, his name mentioned anywhere. Well, it hasn't happened. It hasn't worked out real well. I know I'll read this one because I really need to know about this. So, you know, um, I found one thing that's happened to me by being, um, alone so much, which I don't mind. I don't mind being alone. I'm kind of a loner anyway, but 
I have found that when I'm around people and uh, I find them very impatient. I've just gotten very impatient with <laughs> other people. So I've got some retraining I've got to do <laughs> before things open up again. <laughs> Why is this person talking? <laughs> Why can't I be talking instead? <laughs> you know, so uh, anyway, things are, things are, are okay. And I, I have confidence, maybe naively, but I have confidence in our government and that, that feels good. I actually felt better about things in a way after what happened last Wednesday in a way because I saw it, it being taken care of and so thank you. Thank you, Pat. Yes, Bob. Hi. So I feel like uh, I feel like I'm in a state of shock and experiencing a lot of fear. I think that I, I, uh, it's gonna take a while to unpack what's happened. I, I don't think there's any question that we're living in historic times. And I think the, the signal for that has been not only what happened on the 6th, but now uh, the response to what happened on the 6th in the way of um, heightened security around the country, it's reminding me very much of the aftermath of 9-11. And I just feel like it's a, uh, it's kind of a tragedy that, that now we're back in a place where um, an event has uh, now, you know, naturally, of course, uh, we're putting our guard up and, um, so I mean I guess I, I guess I kind of feel like like from my day to day it's, things are going okay I'm going to work collaborating with my coworkers and all that kind of stuff but uh, I feel like as a as a country deep down I feel like we're in a, a I feel like we're we might be in a state of shock about things that I uh, things things I saw that I never would have imagined happening in my lifetime. That's, that's my two cents. Thank you. Thank you very much for that. Yes, Kathy. Um, I feel like I've been holding my breath for four years. Um, <laughs> Can't hear you, Kathy. Practitioner. I've been holding my breath for four years, which as a practitioner of Zen isn't a very good idea, but... Uh, <laughs> That's figuratively, um, but I just felt like the present, the outgoing administration was trying to destroy everything I believed in, in terms of the environment and human rights and everything. Uh, so I feel a huge sigh of relief, even though we, uh, even, even though the sixth happened. Um, I feel very lucky that I am well and that I was fortunate enough by a fluke of a phone call to get the first shot. So I hope that uh, very soon everybody will get their first shot if they haven't yet. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Kathy. May it be so. <laughs> Anyone else? Yes, David. Um, so I, I would... I would just say that uh, COVID has hit really close to home for my family. 
and um, the combination of all of it, the combination of the impacts of COVID, the kind of crumbling of the government has been has been the hardest just just kind of hard to fathom how to deal with all of it and um, I think the thing that I think about a lot is um, this pain and this suffering that that I'm experiencing and my family is experiencing is happening millions and millions of people all over the globe. And in um, those people that are experiencing that don't have anywhere near the means and the resources, many of those people don't have anywhere near the means and resources that, that I and my family have to deal with this. So um, that is also hard to imagine, um, but I, that is, that's, that's where we're at right now. I, I am so grateful for this community and grateful to sit with everyone when I can and um, to attend these sessions. And um, one of the other things that I have been thinking about is in the past, when I've gone through challenging times, we had one of our children was really sick once and it was a really hard time for our family. This was years ago. And one of the things I was able to do um, was at work, I was able to focus on um, helping other people um, and helping them be successful or helping them, uh, just helping other people, focusing on helping other people, especially at work. Um, and I'm a manager at work, so it's easy for me to do that, help other people be successful. Um, but that's been so hard now because I don't see other people um, other than virtually. Um, and uh, so it's, um, you know, I, I just feel like there's just been this series of voids um, that in including losing people and then people in isolation disconnection from people um, that uh, it is um, constantly kind of unsettling, dis dis disruption. So this happens and I can adjust and then this happens and I have to readjust and then so many, so many readjustments yeah. um, that it, it feels like the series of voids and it's like adjusting to a void, adjusting to something missing, which is different than adjusting to something that's entered my life or something like that. Mm. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. That's very well put. It speaks to me. It speaks to my heart. Thank you, David. So I've been talking with a number of people, uh, as I do, <laughs> and uh, just noticing the range and I in, in inviting 
folks to say a few things about where they're where they're at. It's a huge range, just from individual to individual, but also even within oneself, the range is vast. And I have, um, you know, I've heard from people who are, um, you know, I don't watch the news. I don't want to think about these things. I'm going to actively, actively, you know, turn away because, you know, for whatever, you know, whatever reason, right? You, you, it doesn't even matter what the reasons are, right? In fact, <laughs> in general, when I'm asking like what people's experiences, the, the sort of the part of us that wants to give the reason for why we do what we do or why we're feeling what we're feeling, it's almost like let that part relax and just feel the feeling. It's what comes up for me. And then I've got people who have, um, who are deeply afraid and wounded, um, suffering the immense amounts of loss, like, like David mentioned just, just earlier. Um, feeling hopeless, overwhelmed, um, panicked, anxious, not knowing what to do with that bundle of distress. Um, especially when it's, uh, you know, maybe the connection that we're used to kind of being able to have, even if it's just, it's not like a completely intentional, like, oh, I'm going to go out with my friend and talk about this difficult thing. Just through the course of one's day running into one another, there are opportunities to connect, to feel and give compassion and empathy that we don't necessarily have at our disposal right now. So um, from my own experience, I'll say that this past couple weeks, but, um, you know, uh, Choro in her talk last week brought up um, Yogan, Steve Stuckey, who is one of my dearest uh, teachers in my life. And another of my dearest teachers, who was Steve's teacher, Sojin Mel Weitzman, as you know, passed on uh, Let's see, <laughs> strangely, it's like in my mind, it's he passed on the day after January 6th. And the fact that those are now in my mind, somehow like there's a connection, not, not necessarily like a cause and effect connection, but that those are somehow connected in my mind as, um, I don't know, a snapshot of my experience and really wishing and hoping that he didn't uh, that, you know, he didn't have to think about what was going on right then when he was making his departure from this realm. And the, I was speaking with someone about this, uh, this loss of uh, Sojin from, from myself. Um, a number of people uh, actually contacted me and said, I'm sorry for your loss, knowing that there was a connection there. Um, but the the pandemic conditions being such that under so-called normal circumstances, I would have been able to grieve in person with people who loved him too and was not able to do that. So like there was emails and text messages flying about and people posting on, you know, uh, you know, the 
the cremation that happened yesterday was live streamed and maybe 95 people were present for uh, Sojin's cremation. And so the feeling of like, oh, here are my people <laughs> who you know I resonate with in this capacity. We have this shared experience, but they're like in the screen. They're like, you know, somehow beyond the veil, behind the veil. Um, and that's where we are as a group, right? This is our group experience. It made me reflect, you know, Choro's talk last week talked about Myogen's practice of gratitude, which is a, um, you know, a very deep practice for him. He described it as being very simple, like just sitting on the edge of his bed when he woke up in the morning or when going to bed at night and just saying the word gratitude and seeing what came up. A beautiful practice. Not the only practice though. It's interesting, I was reflecting on, um, on Steve, Abbot Steve, when he um, started doing practice periods at Tassajara, I think his first one was in 2007. And um, his wife Lane, it's a three month period where he would come down and he would try to be there for the whole three months, right? So he'd be, he would leave his family and his Sangha up in Rohnert Park and come down to Tassajara to teach. And he'd get these, um, he'd get these packages periodically from his wife, Lane, who would send him news clippings or articles or just kind of like the news of the day, things that, uh, keeping him abreast of things that were going on in the world because there was no internet then at Tassajara. <laughs> there's no, there's no, you know, you get a, one newspaper would come in a week. And so all of your time is like not mediated in any way, shape or form by a screen <laughs> other than the screen of the wall in front of you in the Zendo <laughs> and the screen of, you know, the bathhouse screens. <laughs> uh, and, uh, but he would receive these packages from his wife. And oftentimes he would, uh, he would open them during, <laughs> during a Dharma talk. And he'd read bits and pieces and make commentary. It's like, oh, this is what's happening in the world. And uh, I could not help but think of him this week in that capacity of, um, Yeah, turning to what is what is going on sort of in this, you know, from the perspective of a cloistered monastic environment, what's going on outside these monastic, these, you know, this front gate, outside the front gate. And um, returning, you know, returning to the shared practice of, um, going back into the Zendo together, entering the dining hall together, eating food together. And when I think about what um, that first practice period that Steve led, he led it on the, um, the Sandokai, which is a poem, a Chinese poem written by one of our ancestors, Sekito Kisen, in the eighth century. 
eighth century Chinese poem. The Sandokai means the harmony of difference and equality. That's how uh, we translate it when we chant it in English. But talk a little bit about the Sandokai. And actually, um, maybe I'll just start by saying that just the title of Sandokai. So in terms of this world of maybe not having a shared shared reality, this world where, where things like um, alternative facts becomes like a thing, where there's so much um, a lack of cohesion, a lack of um, shared reality. Maybe I should back up and just say, uh, prior to my Zen practice, to embracing Zen training and uh, kind of throwing myself into Zen practice in the way that I did, um, prior to that, I was teaching philosophy at City College in San Francisco and had a, you know, that was what, that was my life, mostly academic in an academic, you know, arena, uh, particularly studying this question of a very basic question, how do we know what we know? What is knowledge? What is truth versus appearance? I'm really trying to untangle that for myself, you know, what's true? Maybe that's in the, you know, in some sense, the, the, the marriage of epistemology or the study of knowledge, and then what's reality or what's true being the study of maybe physics and metaphysics, but how easy it is to get caught when we don't have, uh, you know, there isn't a shared understanding. How do we, uh, how do we adopt, uh, how do we not adopt a stance and yet we have to adopt a stance? I remember a few months ago, I can't remember, maybe it was in November, we had Norman Fisher come and give a Dharma talk in our online Zendo and he spoke on the, uh, the Lotus Sutra and the idea of refuge within the Lotus Sutra. And I thought it was a fantastic talk. If you haven't listened to it, it's on our, our Dharma talk library. But he talked about um, he talked about a particular practice. So I'm I'm kind of detailing practices here. One being what Churro brought up last week with Steve's gratitude practice. But then Norman brought up this practice of a particular bodhisattva. Um, the bodhisattva never disparages. Do you remember that? I don't know if you. I uh, uh, just want to say there's a there's a song that uh, you can look up on the internet called the Bodhisattva Never Disparages. And um, it's sung by two people who came up with the song at Tassajara back in 19, yeah, 2000, 2000, 2001. And uh, um, it commemorates this bodhisattva's practice of never disparaging. But how do we do that practice? In the sense of where we are right now in the world, this time of great division, 
and uh, lack, I'd say, of harmony? What is a practice of uh, uh, this moment, of this time, whether it's the isolation that we feel from being in COVID, time of COVID, whether it's the horror at seeing uh, what happened at the Capitol and what uh, reading what may happen or what some feel they wanna do uh, going forward in our country. In my you know philosophy background, the one thing I remember early on being an early adopter of the of the Socratic idea of I know that I know nothing as um, in terms of what we like how do we know what we know to have this paradox right this you know Plato's uh, description of Socrates's statement I know that I know nothing I don't think Socrates ever actually said those words specifically um, but something about being able to acknowledge that my, that what I think is true because I saw a YouTube video, because so-and-so said it on the news, um, whatever it is, what I think I know, how do we hold that as knowledge or uh, belief? So where we are now in this, uh, time of COVID and this time of, I would say, increasing awareness of a, uh, a threat to our democracy, to, as Kathy said, those things that we hold very dear. How did we get here is one question that we can ask and we look back and it's a very important question. How did we get here, right? Maybe in some sense, there's, there's a little bit of element of uh, the parable of the arrow, right? You get hit by an arrow and you can ask these questions of like, where did this arrow come from? Who made the arrow and what, you know, how deep did it go in? And you can ask all these questions about the arrow, but like the real question is how do you pull it out? How do you uh, attend to the wound? Um, I apologize if my talk is really rambling. <laughs> I'm realizing that I'm just kind of all over. Uh, and I'm just, uh, thank you for letting me share my, my mind at this moment with you. Um, but this question that I want to come back to is what is, given this, uh, this world and this time, what is our response? I don't know if people saw the, uh, on our website, the Austin Zen Center website, I have posted um, a statement that I, the Austin Zen Center, I practice leadership um, wants to support. We, we posted two separate, two statements, one from the Soto Zen Buddhist Association and one from our parent temple, the San Francisco Zen Center on, um, you know, what is our response to what happened on January 6th? I wanted to read um, one part of that SCBA, the Soto Zen Buddhist Association statement. But maybe I'll wait for a moment and just say, 
in that talk that uh, that Norman gave on the Bodhisattva never disparaging, I think, uh, how many of you were there for that talk? Quite a few of you. In that talk, I had asked a question um, and given a story about a man who had inquired about coming to AZC's Dharma talk and had, um, had wrote in and said, you know, I was planning on coming to your Dharma talk and I walked by the building and noticed a Black Lives Matter banner flying outside and I decided I don't wanna have anything to do with this organization. And I brought that up to Norman in that talk and asked him, you know, kind of like, what do you do with this? What does the Bodhisattva never disparage do with this? And uh, do you remember what Norman said? Yeah, Rob? Yeah, I think he wanted to know more about the perspective of that person. And I think he, I remember him using the word cogent. I think, I think being open to the idea that of, of considering like, well, maybe there's some merit to what this person is saying and to, and to be willing to look into that. That's what I, that's what I remember. I think, I think that Norman was definitely illuminating that side. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Um, in particular, I think Norman was um, encouraging the opening of space around, you know, in, having some curiosity, like the, the space that a curious mind has, um, which I would say, you know, is a fantastic practice, right? Absolutely, to as much as we can to uh, keep the curious mind alive and well, right? Now, I would say that Norman was not, um, that his bringing up that side was not his, was not a, a way of saying, well, this is the definitive answer for how one responds, right? He was bringing it up as this is one side, and then there's another side. And what's the other side? In terms of how we respond, right? If there's a, um, well, let me just first say that the, uh, the practice of saying, huh, let me think of your, let me see if I can adopt your perspective, right? That, that practice kind of um, not necessarily assumes, but it 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 comes more readily when one is in a position of privilege, where they can safely do that. Yeah. And then the. Uh, in Buddhism, as we know, there's this question of uh, uh, both and. And, you know, uh, I heard Rich 
let people know that the Dharma discussion group is studying the book, Not Always So. So again, there it is, Not Always So. Yes, but, or yes, and, <laughs> both and. What is this practice? Um, the um, last night I was in a, a Zoom kind of a Zoom hangout session, brief hangout session, and one of the people in the group uh, who is looking for jobs now in this market, he's looking for uh, professor jobs in his, you know, his field of psychology, and he had had a he was describing a, an interview that he had. And um, I'm not sure exactly what his, I think his field of study is um, sports, psychology and sports. And um, he was describing a, an interview that he had with somebody who basically was asking him about his field of study, which is on racism in sports and the psychological factors that uh, contribute to racism in sports. And the person who was interviewing him, he was describing, but the person who was interviewing him was saying, well, you know, I understand that this perspective, I'm totally paraphrasing here, but I understand this perspective of like, you know, certain people, you know, their perspective needing to be known or not being known. But then what about these other people's perspective? Why should they care about this, your perspective, if they have a completely different perspective? Right. Again, this plurality of our experience and the fact that we are um, um, living in bubbles, right? So in this uh, description of my friend about his, this interview, he basically was saying, yeah, it was, the, it was like the version of, uh, on the one hand, me saying, hey, you know, Black Lives Matter and being told, well, wait a minute, what are you saying? Like, all lives matter. And when a couple other people in the group kind of expressed shock at this, he said, this is just how it is. It's just how it is. And what do we do as a uh, individually and collectively to illuminate, illuminate this? What does it mean to be practicing for the benefit of all beings? So in this statement that um, SCBA uh, posted that we have now on our website, I wanted to share. As Zen Buddhist clergy, we condemn the attack on the United States Congress on January 6th. We acknowledge the anguish and rage it has brought. At the center of our tradition is the understanding that violence leads to violence, compassion to compassion, ignorance to ignorance and insight to insight. Although countless conditions led to the attack at the Capitol, we see that the violence at the Capitol was deeply tied to the white supremacy that has characterized this nation since its inception. White supremacy was a founding principle of the United States and remains one of the hierarchical conditions on which this nation operates. Until this country fully acknowledges and repairs the damage of the horrific violence and day-to-day -day inequities of its racist systems, we will continue to reap its fruit. We must recognize the poison of racism, not as an evil committed by terrible people, 
but as a part of the fabric of our collective karma, which we must unravel together if we want to be truly free. I'm skipping ahead. Buddhism teaches us that there is always the possibility for healing and liberation to be free of the violence of white supremacy and other modes of systemic oppression. We must acknowledge them fully, collectively and individually as an ongoing practice. And from this acknowledgement, find the way to fundamentally transform our society with compassion alive in our hearts and the courage to face the truth, let us move into liberative action. I got an email from uh, one of our members um, talking about, you know, sort of coming to some recognition of their own bias and largely unaware and in Zen, there's an expression, I know I've mentioned it before, the expression of the board carrying fellow. You all heard of this, this character in Zen. The board carrying fellow is like, imagine a carpenter who's working on a project and they're carrying a board, right? And the board is like, you know, on one shoulder, this big long board, 12 inches, carrying the board. Well, the board carrying fellow does not see <laughs> that side of the world. They see this side. And in Zen uh, and in, uh, I would say in my own, you know, 17 year old, newly passionate uh, philosophy student, I know that I know nothing is an expression of being a board carrying fellow because the, uh, if we hear the expression board carrying fellow and we look out to the world and say, oh, look at these board carrying fellows. Um, we're not, you know, there's something very, <laughs> it's very easy to do that, right? And uh, um, not realizing that actually we are all board carrying fellows. Our brains are built for bias. Bias that we are not even aware of. Right. What do we do with this? Do we acknowledge that our brains are built for bias? Or do we hold fast to uh, st our strong ideas about like, this is the way it is? How do we open to uh, a softening around the relaxing as Tracy brought up this relaxing around thoughts? How do we balance relaxing around thoughts with actually, you know, taking a stand and saying, this is not acceptable? How do we find our way in between these um, seeming extremes of practice? And given what's happening in the world and where, uh, where we are, what is our practice? How do we step forward? How do we, you know, how did the, um, which I, the reason I read the, the excerpt from the Soto Zen Buddhist Association statement condemning the attacks on Congress was that I felt like they did a really good job in crafting that statement to include, be inclusive of a scope. It wasn't just, it's the problems over there. This group or these people are the problem. 
I have a, sadly, I have a, um, someone who I spent many years with, um, just, you know, during work periods at Tassajara, he would come and he would work on, uh, you know, he'd work in the shop and, um, you know, he was kind of a, kind of a crazy guy, had a lot of interesting views and, but he was a practitioner and, and um, really labored on behalf of the, uh, of Tassajara, go in and, and uh, each, each year he'd come for years and uh, come for the whole work period, both work periods, the three week one and the two week one. And in recent years, however, he's kind of, um, he's kind of fallen into a, a, the rabbit hole of YouTube conspiracy videos. And I get occasional Facebook posts from him that I haven't responded to actually with just, you know, just sharing videos and uh, news clips from, you know, one news network and Newsmax. And uh, more recently in the last couple of months, one of the posts that he sent was a, it looked like a call to arms actually. This was back in July. And just yesterday I went back and looked at, cause I hadn't, I mean, I actually don't go on Facebook um, really much at all, but I had reason to and, and was like, huh, I wonder how so-and-so is doing. And uh, the, the feeling of seeing this, uh, you know, somebody who is very open to the practice of not knowing, of being wary of our own fixed views, of being able to hold the kind of space that allows for this and not this simultaneously, this paradox. Um, the ex falling into this extreme of, you know, this feeling, strong feeling that this person has been radicalized by what their, their diet, their media diet. And of course, all of us live in our own bubbles and we all have our own board that we're carrying, right? But there's a practice in Zen, in Buddhism, this practice that Suzuki Roshi calls not always so for example. And this practice is, um, it's not very comfortable actually. And thinking back to that first practice period with Steve Stuckey at Tassajara where he taught on the Sando Kai, the harmony of difference and equality, Suzuki Roshi apparently the last lectures of his life were on the Sando Kai. He, uh, the grouping of, I think he gave, I don't know how many lectures, um, you know, at Tassajara, he gave lecture after lecture, just kind of going through this, unpacking this uh, eighth century poem. And uh, I wanted to encourage people, if you haven't heard the poem, or even if you have, that we read this poem, we chant this poem, uh, Normally during a, when we're in person, we've been, we chant it every, every week uh, in Zen centers. It's, chant, it's one of the most frequently chanted chants at Zen centers. And we will be chanting it on Tuesday morning as part of our birthday commemoration of Martin Luther King Jr. And it, 
in this uh, um, in this poem, this harmony of difference and equality, Sando Kai. So the San in Sando Kai means uh, diversity, multiplicity. It means the many, variety, plurality, difference, uniqueness. Um, it references kind of what you might, what we would call what Western philosophy would call like the phenomenal world. In Japanese, it's the term G. G is kind of like this, the concrete, so substantial. The Do from Sando Kai means oneness, sameness, equality, unity. So we've got the difference and the equality. And Do is the noumenal, the noumenal world, the absolute, the ultimate, the undifferentiated, the, the realm that we, this oneness realm that it's impossible for us to actually really talk about um, clearly. Shohaku Okamura describes that as the reality of emptiness, which is beyond discriminations, beyond differences. That's Do. And then the Kai of Sando Kai means uh, agreement, an agreement. The image of um, shaking hands, Kai. It's like this merging, right? This agreement between sameness and difference. Harmony of difference and equality. The time that the Sandokai was written was a tumultuous time in this history of Zen. It was this, there was a splitting at that time into what was called in China, what was called the Northern School and the Southern School. And it wasn't always a, it was not a peaceful splitting. Um, and this poem, sometimes I've, I've heard it uh, described as this poem kind of talks about how, uh, kind of tries to suit, to heal that divide between the Northern School that preached that there was, uh, that enlightenment comes gradually. And then the Southern School, which preached that no enlightenment comes suddenly, the sudden versus gradual schools of Buddhism and ways of uh, becoming enlightened. You know, does it take lots of time? And like, you know, is it a path centered, you know, you follow these steps and then enlightenment comes? Or is it like something that happens like that when the bamboo is hit by the rock and ah, right? You know, I, I have this, <laughs> this feeling that people came to blows over this, right? It doesn't take much actually for us humans to get worked up and then come to blows. The, um, I wanted to bring up this harmony of difference and equality as a practice of finding liberation and freedom. In particular, this question that we can always uh, open ourselves to, which is how do we find the harmony of our uh, plurality with, the, uh, with oneness between the relative world where people are good and bad and the absolute world where there is no good and evil. How do we find the harmony between these? 
because normally what we do is we fall into one or the other. And uh, in the poem, this is described, the, this harmony is described as uh, like the front and back foot in walking, right? Or two sides of the same coin. It doesn't use that description, but this, this flipping between on the one hand, on the other hand, on the one hand, on the other hand, right? How do we are in our, with our limited brains, like uh, how do we grok that? In the first uh, talk on the Sandokai that Suzuki Rishi gave during this series of talks, it's uh, the, the title of the talk is Things As It Is. And he talks about this, uh, when we get caught up in the relative, this small mind that gets caught up in the relative. So I wanna read a little bit from that, from his lecture. He says, the Buddhist way is to include always our practice and our mind, not small mind, but big mind, which includes things. So to think this is just a vegetable is not our way. We must treat things as a part of ourselves as something which exists in our practice and or in our big mind. Small mind means the mind <clears throat> which is under the limitation of desires or some particular emotional understanding or some discrimination about good and bad. So even though you think you are observing everything as it is, actually you are not because of your discrimination and your desires. The Buddhist way is to try very hard to eliminate this kind of emotional discrimination and prejudice or good and bad. After doing so, it is possible to see everything as it is. So when we say everything as it is, this means to practice hard to get rid of our desires, not to get rid of, but you know, to, to calculate, to take into account our desires. If there's a computer, you must put in all the data. <laughs> One of the data will be our desire. This much desire, this much nourishment, this color, this weight. Usually we don't take into account our desires. Without reflecting on our selfish judgment, we say he is good or he is bad. But someone who is bad to me is not always bad. To someone else, he may be a good person. So we should take into account our desires. In this way, we can see everything as it is. And later he says, so we should not stick to some particular way and we should always open our minds to observe things as it is and to accept everything, things as, everything as it is. Without this preparation, if you say, this is the mountain, this is my friend, this is the moon, the moon will not be the moon itself. So if we stay on one side, emphasizing the harmony, for example, oh, it's all one, don't worry about anything. <laughs> if we fall on that side, we, the board is on this side, right? And then we can be in the, uh, you can fall on the other side of, well, uh, you know, insert whatever you want there. It's it's the large bulk of the majority of our beliefs and and uh, especially the ones that we, you know, want to, you know, rally around, take up and um, assert the, the veracity of, right? All of that being in the relative realm. Even the view, even a strong view that somehow we need to take up this practice of harmonizing difference and equality. That in itself can be a, um, a fixed view. 
So what is our practice in the midst of um, seeing a, seeing a, a whole nation's karma playing itself out in ourselves coming to a, a fixed view and you know the feeling when you really feel into that fixed view it comes up um it has certain qualities right of um concentration of like grasping like uh, the stickiness or um hardening like a hardening like when we think we're right when i'm right you're wrong that comes with a feeling inside right of hardening and at the same time if we uh, disavow having views and fall into the side of oneness, then everything's kind of mushy. So how, how can we hold both and? And how do we, in the, the impetus for holding both and, what is the impetus for holding both and in ourselves? How do you know what the impetus is in ourselves? You look. You look inside and you, you feel into where is this coming from? This, the impetus, this uh, impulse to practice in this way or that way, right? And we feel that hardening, that tightening. How do we become curious about that? in a safe way, right? Because I don't want to say these, what I'm saying as this kind of like, oh, just, just you know, um, it's so easy, just do it, right? Because there's times when, uh, when we're like, for example, when we sit in the Zendo and we generally think of that being a safe space, we generally think of like, oh, I've got my little Zabaton, it's my little world right here that's holding me. And the, the wall in front of me is, you know, if there's things that are on the wall that are scaring me, it's not the wall that's scaring me. It's actually something inside, right? We have that safe space in order to do that kind of practice. So when we're in a safe space, we can step into this much more readily. If we're not in a safe space, what is our practice? How do we carve out that uh, non-reactive, open, curious mind? How do we allow that to uh, arise if we're not feeling safe? And that question is, um, you know, if that question allows us to turn inward and check and see, as opposed to coming up with some, you know, description that from the outside, that's practice. That's practicing with it, whatever it is that's arising. So all of, I think what I'm saying today is just, I really want to encourage um, myself, <laughs> all of you, the whole world to take up the practice of not fixing to views and taking a stand for views, doing both.
and finding that, you know, keeping that question alive. How do I do this? How do I harmonize difference and equality? How do I walk this path between relative and absolute, between what my fearful, uh, constricted mind is saying and what a more spacious mind? Is one better than the other? Can you have one without the other? Are there any comments? Yes. Me? Yeah, but I think I think I, I, I can't help uh, this image of the board carrying fellow and thinking about how fixed views end up hurting lots of people or some people. And I think about the board carrying fellow when he turns his direction and he's got this big long board, how he probably bonks some people or even kills some people or knocks some people down. <laughs> so I thought yeah, I'd share that. Yeah, that's a good image, isn't it? Yeah. You have to be very careful being a board carrying fellow. <laughs> I see, uh, 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 thank you for whoever is putting this in the, Mary. I think you're you were first, so I could see. Which then, Mary? Then, oh. <laughs> ah, okay. Yes, you you Mary, and then Choro, and then Mary Shepherd. Okay. okay. Yeah. Well, I, I I was thinking about um, Norman's response to your question, and one of, in addition to talking about it is looking at both sides. I, he seemed to be also if my memory is correct, suggesting that we don't know what's in this person's mind and that reaching out and having a conversation is part of being open. Yes. Yeah. And, um, and if, we, if we don't open to having the conversation, we'll never be able to take another's perspective and they won't be able to hear ours. Yes. And this meeting, this, the, the third that happens when we meet, I think is what transforms a culture. Yes. And, and so uh, thinking about what do we do next? <laughs> you know, it's trying to, trying to meet people, even if they're, if we can't wrap our minds around initially when our own projections are to put them in a category. Right. Yeah. So yeah, I heard I heard Norman very much kind of invoking this sense of curiosity. Yeah. Yeah. And I would say, thinking of Socrates as well, I think Socrates made the same claim that nobody thinks of themselves as doing something bad. Yeah. Anyway, I just I was just trying to remember whether I had that right, but also just thinking about what do we do with this, you know, in relationship? How do we maintain relationships so that we can have a transformation in our culture? It's not going to be by us doing this in our heads. It's, it's, it's going to be doing it in relationship. Right. Right. Thank you. That's Choro. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I don't know if people have noticed, but uh, Berkeley Zen Center recently posted uh, what are apparently some recent words from Sojin while he was dying. Um, they're on there. It's on the web page. 
So this was posted, uh, I think, after his death sometime in the last week. And um, I want to read an excerpt from it, but I also want to say that sometimes when Sojin or other Dharma teachers who have been abbots or practice leaders for decades and, uh, you know, have had kind of continuous affirmation and support and devoted students, when they speak, I sometimes feel it's from a position of privilege, um, which has nothing to do with color or anything like that necessarily. It's just, you know, they, they have a, a, a kind of um, assured position in their communities and respect. Not, and it's not that they've never had any challenges either. Um, but just to say that, because when I hear these words, I think I'm so glad he can do that. <laughs> I'll, I'll just read it now. Um, this is quoting from this post. I am able to not hang on to anything. That's my secret. I believed my teacher, Suzuki Roshi, when he said, don't get caught by anything. I really believed it. And then not only did I believe it, I started acting it. I started acting it out. So that's where I'm at. Don't get caught by anything. I'm able to dwell on something. The news is what the news is. My anger is what my anger is. That's all. And I try to do what I can do to assuage my or everybody's anxieties. I don't have much anxiety. I'm gonna die. I'm on my way. What should I do? Worry about it? Everybody does this. Nobody escapes. This happens to every single person that's ever lived. Why should I worry about? So those were, and he goes on a little further, but I'll stop there. And um, I really do feel like that's how Sojin tried to live. He took these words from his teacher and he went with them for his whole life and the conditions supported him to do that. Yeah. Um, but I still think there's some teaching in it. Kind of what me worry? <laughs> <laughs> because we are gonna die. So that's the other part of this. How do we hold living and dying? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much for that, for sharing the, those, um, those words of Sojin. And, and yes, the, um, he was very, very, uh, that teaching was central to him. The, uh, I know, uh, a certain deshi of his has the uh, the phrase "what me worry" tattooed onto him. <laughs> you know who it is. <laughs> thank you, thank you, Choro, for sharing that. Mary. So first, I wanted to um, say how grateful I am for you. Uh, Reverend Marco, you uh, are uh, if it, it, you are an inspiration. You have been an inspiration since the first time I met you. You probably don't even remember, but it was Tassahara. And uh, you were an inspiration then, and you remain an inspiration. And um, I, I know I um, speak for many folks at the Austin Zen Center who all feel such gratitude 
for your practice, for your demonstrations, um, for your work. Um, I just, uh, that was the first thing I, I, I wanted to say. And the second is something that uh, uh, I've, I've just done a four day session with uh, the Rochester Zen Center. And uh, so I'm starting to look at news and everything again. Uh, it was fortuitously scheduled. I can't imagine uh, that they anticipated there would be so much turmoil and then you could have a sashim that you could focus on and just turn off everything for, I only did four of seven days, but it was um, um, so um, useful. But now I'm diving back in and in the New York Times, I saw an interview with Cicely Tyson, who is uh, 96 years old. And one of the questions to her uh, was about uh, dying. And one thing she commented was that she wasn't afraid of dying because she didn't know what it was. And it was kind of the, the impact of her text, the import of her text was, so there's a lot of people imagine and say things about it but she doesn't know what it is. So there's no point in her, and it's inevitable. So there's no point in her being afraid. So that was her perspective about it. So she was going on with her life and she's 96, so amazing. But um, another amazing woman. So um, thank you, Reverend Mako, you amazing woman. Thank you. Thank you, Mary. my fellow amazing woman. Yes, was that Sherry, did you? So I, um, yes, thank you for your talk, uh, Maka, it's much appreciated. I wanted to say first off that I, uh, I watch the news at 5.30 every day. It's just, I just do it and uh, I watched a couple of days ago, I know it's not fake news because the person who actually got injured was was being interviewed. So, I mean, it was coming from the original source. It was a police officer, the Capitol Police man. I don't know if anybody saw it, but he, uh, apparently he was dragged down into the crowd and he was being beaten, but he, uh, he, appealed to their humanity by saying, shouting, I have children, I have four children, as they're kicking him and beating him. And the crowd around him stopped and they protected him. So, I mean, there's different, uh, if we can appeal to the humanity in all of us and that we all suffer and they were able to make that, some people were able to, and I think that's kind of heartening. Mm that to that occurrence but it is thank you thank you for sharing that sherry and i i, I completely agree um actually it reminds me i was gonna say <laughs> i didn't get to it but i wanted to um i mentioned that there was a person who wrote to me and was talking about their own grappling with their um with their bias 
their unconscious bias and seeing it in themselves. And just to say that, you know, the module that's starting tomorrow, the, the studying radical Dharma and the way of tenderness, this module is um, of the waking up group. It, the intention of this waking up group is to actually see one's own, like one's own unconscious bias. So uh, there's a, you know, in, encouragement as this was one way to, to, to take that up as a practice. Right? But I wanted to share this one piece from this person who was talking about, um, you know, seeing their own stuff, their own conditioning, right? He says, my vow is to become more aware of these parts which cause harm for myself and others, to hear what they have to say to me with gentleness and openness and to endeavor to not act from them. And this was in the context of seeing bias and being uh, ashamed and wanting to eradicate it and that being illuminating one side and then another side of, okay, how do I start where I am and accept what I don't really know, what I don't know and study it? What is my vow in this? No. And how do I, um, because if we, if we go forward and um, are not able to accept the unacceptable, we're just we're bringing another board up. So how do we accept the unacceptable and go from there? Anyway, thank you, you reminded me of Sherry. David, yes. And I think this uh, this should be the last last comment. This week I was reading about and investigating a little bit the paradox of tolerance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, it's been on, it's been popping up in the news more lately. Um, and Marco, maybe maybe there's value. You're a philosopher, so you can you can discuss it probably more more uh, <laughs> articulately than I can, but the thing that that strikes me about your um, talk today is um, the idea that the the paradox of tolerance. Um, if you want an open society, you can't tolerate intolerance. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe you can help clarify. But. Um, uh, Maybe that's if you think of that as an equation, can't tolerate, you know, somehow there's an equation there. This plus this doesn't get you this. Um, if you want an open society, if that's what you want as a result, you've got to have some rules in place. You've got to have some intolerance of intolerance. Um, but uh, your talk has uh, is been adding to this investigation that I've been doing, which is I would add into that equation compassion. So there's tolerance, there's intolerance. Now let's add in a factor of compassion equals an open society. Um, so that's, you've, yeah, that's where, that's where this has, has taken me. And I appreciate that. Uh, um, I think about um, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's talk this week. She had an Instagram live and it was very powerful 
Um, and she's calling for people that uh, voted against the free and fair election to be out of Congress, for example. She's not being tolerant. And uh, on the other hand, she's not asking for them to be executed, for example, <laughs> as an extreme example. So there's compassion in what she's saying, I think. Um, and and perhaps her her strong uh, perspective on this is uh, is toward an open society. It's not towards a closed. It's you know moving these people out of Congress, asking them to leave, forcing them to leave, whatever it ends up being. Um, holding people accountable for their actions at the Capitol is not intolerance. Um, it's been fascinating to watch people find out. I've watched some videos of people find out at the airport that they're on a no-fly list because of their actions at the Capitol. Yeah. They're not, they've not been executed. <laughs> they just can't fly. There's consequences. And that's maybe that's a compassionate approach to dealing with uh, sedition, seditious acts. Um, and maybe uh, furthering that compassion is you know, there's of course education is a part of that too. Why why is it what you did is seditious? Why is it what you did is based in in white supremacy? Maybe that being getting on a no-fly list, maybe, I mean, based on some of the videos I saw, they were their reactions were childlike. How dare you do this to me? And maybe in that moment of childlike awareness, there's an opening there mm. for uh, um, in some enlightenment about their white privilege and their and their support of white supremacy. And how and maybe uh, compassionate people can help them see that. Yes, thank you, thank you for that, David. This, uh, you know, this this paradox of the intolerance of intolerance is, uh, you know, very uh, alive for me as well. Just throughout throughout my life, this feeling of like I want to be a tolerant person. Does that mean I need to be intolerant of this <laughs> this thing that's abhorrent? <laughs> like, what does it mean to be? Uh, what does it mean to be? What is what does tolerance of intolerance actually look like? Can it be intolerance with compassion? Again, where does the what's the this is where looking inside and feeling the feeling of where is this coming from, right? Is my uh, desire to have this person locked into a prison, if that is my desire, if that were my desire, would is it coming from uh, hatred or is it coming from uh, acceptance? Is it coming from love? Is it coming from compassion? Yeah, because it can come from all of those places, you know, any of those places. Thank you for bringing that up. And with that, I think we should end. It is much later than I uh, realized. And um, uh, yes, and thank you, Bill. Not knowing is most intimate. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm just gonna post the, I mentioned the Bodhisattva Never Disparages song. And uh, I was gonna just post a link to it so that uh, people can listen to it and um it's about a song about the lotus sutra 
So enjoy that. Thank you all very much.